HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Whole Foods Market, a dynamic leader in the quality food business, a mission-driven company that aims to set the standards of excellence for food retailers. For more information, visit WholeFoodsMarket.com. I'm Erin Fairbanks, host of The Farm Report. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org for thousands more. Hey, and welcome to the Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel, here today with Robin Lee, who has a fascinating project. And we were just chatting before the show that you got to assimilate to the U.S. through the eyes of Jackson Pollock. At least your palate did. Uh, a really cool book called Dinner with Jackson Pollock. But before we get to that artist's point of view, I want to talk about you as an artist because you, you are from Melbourne, Australia. Um, spent time in Milan, now situated in the lovely Westchester. Um, but you've been a photographer, a writer-director for the last two decades. How has that artistic journey brought you here to the U.S. and then out into East Hampton? Mm-hmm. Wow. Uh, so, I mean, I suppose from a young age I was always interested in, you know, the creative arts. It was not a question of what would be my job, but what creative area I would specialize in. I was lucky enough to be exposed to you know, great um, artists in my midst and had a very strong art program at school. So I really was able to try lots of different things and, you know, crafts, um, you know, ceramics, metalwork, woodwork, photography, graphic design, painting, and really kind of explore all of those things in a meaningful way from a young age. So um, Milan was my first stop when I was an 18-year-old. I went there as an assistant to a photographer. A friend from school had told me that his aunt was a famous photographer in Milan. And that just seemed like the ultimate to me. Yeah, I mean, at that age, the allure of travel. Too. Yeah, yeah. I was 15 when I decided to become a photographer. All I did was just tell my friends about how one day I was going to be this famous photographer, uh, which probably bored them to tears. But <laughs> ultimately, this friend coughed up this... Uh, story about his aunt and I said I have to meet this aunt like how can I meet her and ultimately I did meet her and I started writing to her begging her to be her and her assistant 
Um, and after my first year of university in Melbourne, she actually said, listen, my assistant's leaving in two months. If you really want to do this, you've got to be here in two months. Um, and so I basically got permission to leave university. I begged my parents for the airfare and I got on the plane. And that was the beginning of this crazy journey, a culinary journey, a journey as a photographer, um, learning my way um, uh, on, on many levels. And culturally, Milan was a closed shop for me. It took many years yeah. to really get into the life there. But um, I found some true soul friends and that really helped me along the way. Well, I mean, being a teenager, leaving Australia, what did you take with you as far as uh, recipes or foods? Because you know, immersing yourself in the Milan, that's a completely different culture. Did you bring a little of your homeland with you? I feel like I was sort of at that time quite sort of immature in my thinking and uh, perhaps I still am now, but <laughs> I, I kind of um, was going through a phase of almost rejecting what I had um, grown up with and really feeling that Europe was going to give me everything in every possible way, culturally, culinary, creatively and... So I, what I bought from home, I suppose, was my work ethic. You know, I, I w grew up in a family where it was very important to apply yourself to whatever area you decided to follow. And that served me well in Milan because they work extremely hard. Um, and I ended up um, uh, living with some Italians, uh, sort of learning the language through them, and, as well as the sort of the culinary um, heritage of that area which was a beautiful experience. The old shank also buco. I, I know that exactly. is, you know, common up there. What What are some of the other dishes that you got to well, learn? Well, listen, I'm obsessed with um, risotto milanese, which I had the very first time in Rome, actually. But, um, you know, uh, gosh, my, my friend Concetta would cook um, Sicilian specialties and actually southern specialties. Her parents were bakers and she grew up in their bakery. So she would um, come with, you know, the fennel, biscotti and you know we'd have them with um, um Vincento after dinner um you know her boyfriend um was from Sardinia and he would you know break out with the liqueurs after dinner too but all the all the specialties from his little tiny uh town in in Sardinia so it for me they taught me everything and they wouldn't allow me to really help them in the kitchen except for if I was just doing very basic tasks because they took it so seriously. It was like a religion. Yeah, I know every Christmas, I think, Panettone's from Milan. Yes, exactly. And, you know, when that comes in, just the packaging alone, yeah. I'm always smitten with how over the top and how ornate it is. But everyone is, is almost secretive. It's proprietary about how they put their Panettone together. Absolutely. You try and get the recipe from, um, from Colva in Milan for their Panettone. Like you'd have to kill about five people. It's yeah. just not, that's not possible. No, but. no. I, I love those guarded secrets yeah. though. Which, which leads us to Jackson Pollock. I mean, you yourself had actually produced a book in Milan about your year of living there, discovering the food fashion and, you know, having a family in what you call a private city. Mm -hmm. Then you come to the U.S. To, to really kind of unearth a very private man. I mean, Jackson Pollock was obviously well-known around the world as an artist, but his, his sensitivity and culinary side, uh, I mean, wasn't even apparent when you first started this project. What, why this leap into someone else's life? Well, it, it was a leap that almost happened to me, I, in a sense. I, I didn't choose it. Um, 
I went out to Pollock House um, really out of desperation. I, uh, when we arrived as a family four years ago, I didn't. I, I basically left behind 25 years of my career to restart in New York. So I arrived here. I didn't have an agent. I didn't have any clients. I didn't have any creative projects on here. I knew, you know, like a handful of people and it was a huge shock to my system Um, and I needed a project and I needed to be stimulated and excited and not just concentrating on visas and um, paperwork and settling my children into school but to replenish myself and feel like I was refueling. That's what took me out to Pollock House in the first place and from there... I just started getting more and more involved in the details of the place and like what the clues were and what the clues of the, you know, these inanimate objects were giving me. And in the pantry, shooting in the pantry, the pots and pans, spoons, you know, to me there were all these like, um, I don't know, there was like these bits of history that I just wished I had have known what it was like to be there at a dinner party. Who did the talking? Who did they invite? What was the dynamic like between them and their artist friends who cooked who didn't cook who was rude you know who was funny who was obscene you know I wanted all of that information but I couldn't get it and but the questions led me to ask the question of the director of the Pollock Center um, Helen Harrison I said oh you know are there any recipe books where I could look through and maybe there's blots on a page or you know markings drawings notes that I could deduct that perhaps that's what they ate and she said, actually, we've got some handwritten recipes by Jackson Pollock and Lee Krasner. And I was just like, you know, astounded. And I said, by Jackson Pollock? And she said, yes. And I said, gosh, um, could I see them? And she sent them to me. There were 16. And um, she sent me some scans. And looking at the scans, I thought, gosh, wouldn't it be beautiful to maybe photograph these in their glory, you know, the folds of the paper and, the, you know, really getting the feel for that that handwriting so we came I, I came down there with my producer and um photographed them and then looked through their recipe books and that's where we discovered these other countless dozens of recipes stuffed in the backs and fronts of these books it's amazing you know in my head obviously uh, the painter that he and both lee were uh with their abstract impressionism drips of paint everywhere splattering about i thought that maybe there'd be recipes scribble on the back but no it seemed like a lot of it was from uh RX's prescriptions, doctor's notes. Mm. I mean, of all things. It, yeah, yeah. I suppose when you hear or enjoy a good recipe, you just pick up whatever piece of paper you have available. I mean, I feel like I do that now. Like you're at a dinner party. Oh, can I just quickly write this down before mm-hmm. I leave? I loved it so much. And you pull something out of your bag. You write on an envelope. You write on, you know, as you said, um, a prescription, one of Jackson's doctors who was assisting him or trying to assist him with his alcoholism and you know there's a fantastic clam recipe on the back of this prescription and on the other side is a great recipe for mussels so it's like whatever was available but these things tell us they give us hints and clues about someone's life and I feel like one of the beautiful aspects of the project was really diving in with some depth into each recipe literally you know absorbing it physically and trying it but also um, really trying to understand what each recipe meant in the context of their lives as artists in the culinary history of America and all of these things so it was a great learning journey and an enormous privilege for me. I mean Jackson Pollock is a man who didn't try spaghetti till he was 18 for being what you know, I would assume is worldly. It, it just seems so odd that he, his, you know, life was so closed to begin with. 
Yes, exactly. I mean, it's interesting. I I would say that his mother was one of the most sort of impressive, industrious and dynamic women that I could possibly imagine. Um, and that she chose not to serve Italian food in her repertoire is interesting because her own handwritten recipe book shows the breadth and passion of her um, her as an artist in the kitchen and she brought a lot of that to the family table. You know, she'd create these feasts um, on a nightly basis um, and, you, you know, thinking about her life and their life as a family at that time, you know, what she produced was extraordinary. Um, but then coming to, you know, to New York um, following you know, his eldest brother, Charles Pollock. Um, Charles also introduced him to his painting teacher, Thomas Hart Benton, whose wife, Rita, was a great chef or cook, I suppose you'd say, not technically a chef, but um, a northern Italian woman who was passionate about feeding people and nurturing them. She was very vivacious, and that's where he had his first spaghetti as an 18-year-old. You know, you call... uh East Hampton or Springs, you know, a hamlet of a city out there in, in you know, Long Island. But really, it was it was almost so theatrical because of the characters that were there, you know, from other artists, uh, you know, to friends that were painters and mentors, uh, Hans Namath. And I mean, there was such culture happening around and everyone kind of threw that into the mix when we're talking about recipes and food as well. Yes, it it is a fascinating place for that reason. And I think that's the reason it still attracts a lot of artists today. And it's, you know, I don't think I've ever been anywhere in the world that it's, that's like that, that you get this, you know, incredible combination of extraordinary ingredients, um, you know, this wealth of culture, you know, the museums, the private galleries, you know, you've got the parish, you've got, you know, youngsters like Tripoli Patterson in Southampton with his galleries. You've got, you know, these fantastic, dynamic, um, creative uh, environments and communities. And that, and, you know, they had that out there um, in the 40s and 50s. And um, they there was a lot of recipe swapping, a lot of ingredient swapping, a lot of obsession with their own gardens and what they were producing, fishing, clamming. You know, it was a way of life. And even though we think of it now, I think, as a sort of a, you know, think of the drama of these characters, one of the things I learnt in the project was there was a lot of just everyday dynamic going on, you know, hey, I've got some eggplants. Oh, look at this fish. Let's go out and do this together or have you over for dinner. You know, there was a lot of that. But in the, um, I suppose when we look back at these things, it all just seems so marvellous, doesn't yeah. it? And so extraordinary. Well, I mean, take the eggplant, for example. Who else slaps an eggplant and says, this is colour? Yes. You know, I'm quoting from one of the head notes of, of the recipe, I think, egg, Eggplant Constantinople. Yes. Um, but, you know, that Pollock was obsessed with just the colour, the hue, the tone of the eggplant itself, as yes. well as the fact that he had grew it. Exactly. And I think the landscapes as well, you know, Lee Krasner talked about how he, how passionate he was about the landscapes out there. And as an Australian going in there, in a sense, possibly in a similar way, you know, he came from the West where he didn't see snow on a beach. You know, he didn't see um, some of the colours and um, landscapes. And then into this environment in Springs, um, and the surrounding landscapes, they're very diverse. You know, you get those beautiful sweeping white beaches of East Hampton and then you get the tiny little bubbling creeks just behind their house. You get, you know, these forests where they would forage for wild ingredients and then you get, you know, these kind of um, 
stark beaches around Laos Point where they did a lot of their um, fishing and clamming, uh, beach picnics. Um, so it's a fascinating array of visual stimulation and opportunity, I think, for an artist. And I think it's very much still like that today. I mean, reflected in the work. No wonder there are painting titles like Enchanted Forest and Sounds in the Grass. I mean, it was all around him. Exactly. The Akabonic Creek series was one of the first series he produced there. And Akabonic Creek was directly at the base of their property and is an ever-changing tidal creek, which sometimes is smelly and muddy and horrible and other times is just like this sort of beautiful oasis of calm with all the marshland grasses around. It's very, a, a very changing visual experience being there at different times of the day even. So you can see how stimulating that was not just to go and clam there, but just to be in that environment. And, um, you know, the work reflects that. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to do a little more fishing, foraging with Jackson Pollock via... Robin Lee. You've been listening to the Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. We'll be right back. Today's program has been brought to you by Whole Foods Market. Washed rind cheeses are a fairly recent addition to the repertoires of artisanal cheesemakers in the United States. These cheeses tend to be stinkier than other types and are often high on the list of connoisseurs. Now, Whole Foods Market has come up with one of their own. A raw cow's milk cheese made by Sprout Creek Farm in Poughkeepsie, New York, is washed with six-point ale from Red Hook, Brooklyn. The beige, sticky rind deepens in color as it ages. The satiny ivory cheese within is mellow, with a sweetly tangy bite and a grassy aroma. The current version features six-point diesel, which is in limited supply, so stop by and pick up some before it's gone. And point-of-origin cheese is sold exclusively at Whole Foods Market in New York, northern New Jersey, and Connecticut. For more information, visit WholeFoodsMarket.com. Hey, my name is Chris Kuzmi from Ferment About It. My favorite food is liquid bread, and you're listening to HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Hey, and welcome back to the food scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Dirkel, here again today with Robin Lee of Dinner with Pollock. Jackson Pollock, that is. Like, I kept on writing um, Pollock as if he were a fish when I was putting my notes down. I'm like, you That's know. That's interesting. Yeah. Very interesting. That's a blending food with art there. <laughs> Your introduction to Jackson Pollock's cuisine or his food, his recipes, was through cornmeal, something that you weren't even familiar with as an Australian. Tell, tell me about that recipe and you know that flavor profile. Mm. Well, I mean, uh, as an Australian coming over here, there were quite a few recipes that I'd never tried before. Um, and one of them was... Um, what we call in the in the book um, cross country Johnny cakes, um, which uh, they love to cook up and sort of drizzle in, you know, maple syrup, butter, a side of bacon or whatever. And uh, Jackson and his eldest brother Charles um, lived on Johnny cakes um, as they crossed uh, the country from uh, New York to California to visit their mother, um, and they basically would. Um, 
they they bought a huge sack of this um, you know cornmeal and would make up the Johnny cakes along the way and then just whatever they could afford to buy. Um, you know, that was readily available and cheap, they would sort of tack onto their meals. Um, but I think it's a beautiful recipe because um, to me, it, it helped me understand the story of the two brothers. You know, Jackson didn't come from a vacuum. And I think, unfortunately, and historically, people sort of think of him as almost um, coming out of nowhere that, you know, perhaps his family wasn't particularly interesting. But in fact, one of the things that became very, very clear was his family were a fascinating, um, industrious, hardworking, talented group of people who were extremely open-minded for that time and gave these boys opportunities that, you know, would have been unheard of, I think, in this day if you had five boys living out in the West with no money. Like, you wouldn't encourage them to be artists. I can't think of many people who would do that. And, you know, here were these parents who were supporting that, um, who lived on the land. His father was a farmer. Um, and, you know, you see the influence of the eldest brother, Charles, and what he brought to the younger brothers in terms of, um, you know, uh, the creative influence, but also in terms of um, the support and bringing Jackson to, encouraging him to come to New York, introducing him to the right people, who then introduced him to all of these new culinary experiences, but a real dynamic and exchange. Now, one of the things that I'm excited to see is that, um, the Peggy Guggenheim collection in uh, in Venice is about to open a major retrospective of Charles Pollock's work, and I know this is completely off topic; it's not food related, but it shows it will show Jackson's work and Charles's side by side for the first time, and you know they shared a lot together. Um, and I'm really glad that that will be happening. No, I mean, seeing all these recipes side by two, what Stella, you know, gave to the family and how other people interjected, it's it's fun to see, you know, Jackson Pollock's interpretation of these outside influences and, you know, a stimuli. Um, baking bread, both apple pies, he became obsessed in this way that he actually had award-winning apple pies. Tell me about this recipe. So his apple pie um, became very famous in Springs because he it won first um, prize at the local fishermen's fair at Ashwa Hall. And by the following year, um, people were already bidding ahead of time to see if they could um, buy the, the special pie. Um, his mother was a great baker. She had actually over almost 100 recipes, dessert recipes and, you know, countless other bread recipes in her book. And I think he really learned that and was influenced by her passion for baking. Um, and so he really was, it was very defined in their kitchen. So he was the baker. Lee was sort of more a general kind of cook. And, um, yeah, the, the apple pie was kind of symbolic, I think, of his passion for baking. He did breads. He did pancakes. He loved anything that was really around those baking recipes. And I think one of the surprises of the project was that that was the case. And people are, you know, surprised when they hear it because, we think of Jackson as being this wild man. And yet, um, even in recent studies of his work, they've seen that actually there was a, a, an absolute methodical approach to the canvas um, and that there was almost like a sort of a, um, an underpainting of structure that showed and in supported his own quotes um, in his lifetime. He said, you know, he denies the accident um, and that, you know, for him, there was very much an approach that was not a wild flicking of paint. That yeah. He knew where it, exactly where it would land. And 
I think this, when you think about it in that way, the baking makes a lot of sense because to me it's an art of precision. It's almost a science. Yeah, and patience. But in that patience, it's because you have a foundation. You have those technical skills already so that you can actually begin to be creative. So uh, it just seems like, you know, baking fit into his mode of thought because, you know, you can get this core structure of something down and then you can start tweaking and tweaking and playing and playing. But there's nothing more basic than a beautiful apple pie. So once he could master that, then he could, you know, expand his repertoire. Exactly. Stella's potato pancakes. You know, we come back to this idea of Pollock's family not being the wealthiest, but being very industrious and very smart with what they have. Uh, Long Island's bumper crock of potatoes is is, is legendary. You know, uh, people overwinter those and they go throughout the whole year. So it's just it's just fun to see that you know she not only understood that aspect of it, but read MSK Fisher and you know interjected these these renowned food writers into very standard recipes. Yes, exactly. And, you know, some of the recipe books in their collection, I think, are very telling. They had the James Beard, uh, you know, fish cookery uh, book. They had um, several books that were given to them by friends um, around themes of nutrition, um, you know, what what to put into your body, smoothies, um, you know, almost like juice fast type um, recipes. Like raw food diet. Yes. I mean, so yes, ahead of the curve. It's yes. kind of amazing. And I think, you know, this came from the belief that um, one of um, their advisors um, instilled in them too that um, Jackson's alcoholism could be cured through food. And I think it's a very poignant story that, um, you know, they did try very hard to cure his alcoholism. And um, one person, Mark Grant, his name was, gave them the impression that if they followed religiously a diet that he gave them, um, which, you know, and also... had these regular protein drinks um, and salt baths that he would be cured. And we know today, of course, you can't cure alcoholism through a strict diet, but you can see how hard they tried to do that. And, you know, Lee was really supportive of that. And I think it's very sad. But, you know, finding the list of those ingredients, um, you know, pinned to the front of one of their recipe books was one of those moments that I thought, you know, here's a human being Mm -hmm. just trying his best. You know, we know the wild stories about them, but I don't know that it's commonly known that, you know, there was this attempt to really get himself together and several attempts over a long period of time. Yeah, and, you know, obviously he celebrated life. And I'm not just talking about the drinking aspect, but, you know, beach picnics with, who was it, Lucio Wilcox. So there was a very, you know, much more humanistic side than I think we all see as this this madman painter artist mm, type. Mm, mm. I mean, he, he was a very serene person, and he just kept on trying to f- have that serenity now, and, and it really shows itself in this book and these recipes. Yes, and he was very joyous. You know, he was almost childlike, I think, in his enthusiasm for ingredients. Um, John and Josephine Little uh, Little's daughter, Abigail, um, wrote this lovely long letter to me during my research phase, remembering when Jackson burst in through their kitchen door with the first fresh strawberries from Amagansett and his enthusiasm and passion for these ingredients and his embarrassment that he couldn't afford to buy more for them. So, you know, there's beautiful stories about, um, you know, love of nature and ingredients and a real respect for that. 
Let's talk about July 3rd, because this is great that people can actually participate in, in this love of not only Jackson Pollock, but, you know, the land in which he, he held so dear. You're actually doing a brunch at the Pollock Krasner House and Study Center in East Hampton. Actually, it's not there. It's at um, Art Hamptons. At Art Hamptons. Um, as part of the Art Hamptons event. Um, they're hosting this um, gorgeous uh, luncheon bruncheon uh you know, with the recipes from um, the book and uh, the proceeds will go to Pollock House. It's, um, it's going to be a real celebration of, of those recipes using the local ingredients, which I think is fantastic. Um, and a local chef there, Chef Colette, will be preparing that meal and, um, and there'll be a signed book for everyone. So it'll be a special day and we hope you can come. Yeah, and another place that... Know that this book and you yourself are traveling, which is really cool. It's a U.S. pavilion in Milan. You know, you get to go back to Milan, um, but you're bringing Chef Mark Ladner with you to create a large spread of Jackson Pollock delights. Yes, so, um, you know, the U.S. pavilion um, is also sort of, uh, I suppose, partnering with the James Beard Foundation, and they're creating this beautiful pop up restaurant in central Milan in a historic building. Um, where they'll be hosting a series of food events and the first official event of the program will be this um, this event with the recipes and Mark Ladner has been invited by the um, US Pavilion to come over and interpret those recipes. So um, I was lucky enough to spend some time with Mark showing him around, you know, some of Jackson's favourite, you know, uh, fishing places and clamming places and his house and studio recently um, in Springs. I only hope Long Island Clam Pie makes it to Milan. I hope it does too because I loved it. Yeah. I don't love shellfish, but I loved that. Or maybe some meatloaf and mustard, but that's more of Stella's repertoire. Yes, exactly, exactly. (laughs) As you can tell, I'm already obsessed with this book. It's not only a fantastic portrait of, you know, an artist, but um, someone who really taught themselves about the world and, and, you know, mediums through food and the land that you know they can forage and farm and um, fish from so it's it's so endearing and if you need to see that softer side of Pollock it's certainly in this book it's quite an accomplishment thank you so go out and buy dinner with Jackson Pollock recipes art and nature just came out by Ozzeline thank you Robin Lee so much for being on the show and stop by you know Art Hamptons or Milan she'll be uh, cooking up a storm there <laughs> thank you Michael you've been listening to the food scene on heritageradionetwork.org I'm your host Michael Harlan Turkel hoping to have you back here next Tuesday at 3 cheers thanks for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore radio. You can email us with questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.